Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors. And under his glory, a burning will be kindled, like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame. And it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy, both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return." Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip, as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day his burden will depart from your shoulder, and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. He has come to Aath, he has passed through Migron. At Michmash he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass. At Geba they lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galam. Give attention, O Lasha, O poor Anathoth. Madmina is in flight. The inhabitants of Gebam flee for safety. This very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. It's hard to believe, but it was 20 years ago that I actually was in a youth group. I was also in a youth group 25 years ago. Uh, so I was in a youth group about 25 years ago, and my youth pastor introduced us to a song from the 70s by a guy by the name of Bill Withers. Uh, it was a song entitled, Lean On Me. Maybe you've heard that song. It goes something like, lean on me when you're not strong, uh, I'll be your friend, and I'll help you carry on. And we used to sing that when we would close, sort of locking arms and thinking about how we were committed to one another, and we were going to lean on one another. Uh, interesting thing about that song, it wasn't exactly a Christian song, and I'm not here to talk about whether or not we should be singing that, uh, but it was not a Christian song, but it was a song that was meant to evoke in us a sense of the fact that we ought to be leaning on someone. Interestingly, what we find is that the Bible speaks of the reality that we are called to uh, lean into certain persons and things. And yet the Bible also says that though we desire as humans to lean into others, there are so many ways that we are tend, or we tend to lean into the wrong things and the wrong people. 
And not only do we lean into the wrong things, sometimes we lean into maybe even the right things a little bit too much to the point that that right thing becomes a wrong thing. Well, that's exactly what we find as we look at the book of Isaiah this morning in chapter 10, verses 16 to 34. Uh, We're looking at an episode where there is a lot of leaning going on. Now, you'll remember that it was the fear and terror of Assyria that set all of this leaning into motion. See, this great superpower, Assyria, was threatening Israel, and so Israel leaned into Syria for help. And then you'll remember that after they leaned into Syria, they they leaned into Judah and said, you need to join us against Assyria, and when they refused, they leaned on Judah, threatening them. And it was at that point that Judah responded by leaning into who? Assyria for help against Israel and Syria. A lot of names here. A lot of leaning going on. People leaning in all kinds of things. But here's the one thing that wasn't happening. There was a whole lot of leaning going on, but nobody was leaning on God. In fact, you'll remember that God came directly to King Ahaz of Judah and said, I don't want you to make an alliance with anyone. I don't want you to be clever. I don't want you to show off what a great king you are and being able to manipulate deals to save your people. I want you to trust me. I am going to save you from Assyria and Israel and Syria alike. And as a result, we find that God promised that he would send his Messiah king to save his people. That he would indeed bring his king about to save his people from all of their enemies, despite their refusal to trust in him, but that they would face judgment. And after that judgment, they would see restoration. So here this morning, what we find is all of this leaning that is going on is actually the pretext for that word therefore that you find in verse 16 of our text this morning. And that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning, about the people of God and where they were leaning and trusting and who they were trusting on rather than trusting God. So here's our big idea that's going to be navigating our court, charting our course this morning. It's this, and if you're taking notes, write it down. It's this, Jesus is the only king we can lean into who will make our burdens lighter. Jesus is the only king who we can lean into who will make our burdens lighter. Now we see this first in verses 16 to 19 where we'll find that God chops down the trees that sent God's people leaning. God chops down the trees that sent God's people leaning. Now the fear of Assyria caused Israel to lean into Syria with an S and to attack Judah. And that caused Judah to lean on and trust in Assyria for salvation. But catch what God does in verses 16 to 19. You can look there with me. Here's what he says. He says, therefore, the Lord of hosts will send wasting sickness among his, speaking of the king of Assyria, stout warriors, and under his glory, a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of the Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land The Lord will destroy both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. This is the end of the king of Assyria that boasted of his great strength as he devastated Syria and Israel. This tells us what his his end was going to be like. So here, the king of Assyria finds a foe that he did not anticipate. The Lord of hosts. Or heavenly armies, a title for God that you'll find repeated throughout this text. 
In verses 23, 24, 26, and 33, it's repeated, the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is the one who is active and engaged in the salvation of his people. Now, what's fascinating in these verses as we go through, you'll notice that he doesn't just stop with this one title for God. Now, as he goes through, you'll notice that there are many different descriptions or titles or names for God that are all meant to, in our minds and our hearts, cause to make us to think about the glory of God from different perspectives. He is an altogether glorious God who cannot be summed up in just one name. He needs many names to describe the many things that he is. And catch this, there are some names we don't get this side of heaven. And when we get to the other side, we'll never get an end of the names of God. He is a great God who is infinite and vast beyond our comprehension. And here, what Isaiah wants to do is just give us a few titles that describe this God to excite his people about how glorious he is in light of this king of Assyria that has so been dictating their leanings and their trustings. You're trusting this king. Let me tell you about the heavenly king that you have lost sight of. He calls him the light of Israel and his holy one in verse 17. The Lord Yahweh, the holy one of Israel in verse 20. The mighty God in verse 21 and the majestic one in verse 34. And each each of these titles, which we could spend time on each, but each only intensifies and magnifies God's glory and simultaneously sheds light on who the king of Assyria really is. And as we see the brightness of the glory of God, do you see how the king of Assyria and his reputation and his boasting flees like a shadow from the light of the Holy One of Israel? He begins to become smaller as God is magnified. God's glory grows throughout these verses as the king of Assyria's glory fades to nothing. Just a little exercise to help you in your life and me in my life. Meditate on the glory of God. If you are struggling this morning because you are fearful and you are trusting in the wrong things, all of the wrong things that are letting you down, Maybe it's because you need to spend more time and God is calling you this morning to comprehend more of Himself. You need to spend more time in His Word reveling in the glory of your majestic God, the Holy One of Israel who saves His people. See, I think this could actually be a good snapshot of all of history. The the captain of heavenly armies here is also pictured as a, a holy fire. A holy fire. Did you catch this? That does two things. One, he brings the light of revelation to his people about the reality of what things really are and what they really should trust and believe. But he is also a fire who is consuming to those who refuse to trust him. Right? He's a a fire that brings light of revelation and also the fire of judgment. He's not a fire that you play around with. You don't let your kids play with fire. Well, we for sure should not play with the holy fire of God. Here what we find is, catch this, both Israel and Judah as they come here are given an image of the mighty God. And this, this captain of the heavenly armies, he's, he's not the kind of captain that sits behind the ranks and behind the lines and sort of uh, looks at what's going on from a distance. Notice that he fights from the front as mighty God, a title that speaks of God's military prowess. God here is a divine warrior who fights to win and never fights without winning. But catch this, both Israel and Judah 
were controlled by Assyria and their fear of him or their hope in him. And here Israel feared them. They feared Assyria. And Judah, they are controlled by a a hope in them that they would save them. But everyone in the story is moved by the words of this king of Assyria and not the voice of the high king of heaven. Everyone's leaning on something or someone, but nobody's leaning into God. Even Assyria's king is boasting as he is mowing down enemies of himself, showing that he's leaning into his trust in what? His own power as he looks for what he can take from God's people. But this is the day. This is the day of judgment for the king of Syria. And I love what Ray Ortland Jr. writes about this king here. He says, the human conqueror reaches into the nest of Israel and plunders the eggs nestled there, like we saw last week in verse 14. Just feels so strong in his ability to to pull out what he wants from this nation. But he doesn't see until it's too late that he's reaching into a plague with no antidote and a fire with no relief. I mean, what a difference a day makes. Verse 17 says that in just one day, God sends devastating, a devastating combo of sickness and fire on Assyria. Sickness, it's interesting, sickness strikes from within. And the fire strikes from without. And so here what we see is, is that God's fiery judgment here is coming, revealing the inescapable nature of God's judgment and the weapons that are at His disposal. God never runs out of bullets. And he is always creative in the way that he brings about his judgments for the glory of his name. See, God's fiery judgment falls on a serious people who are called briars and thorns in verse 17. Did you see that? But they're also called his fruitful forest in verses 18. So there are those who are little and great amongst his people. But take note, both small enemies like shrubs and big enemies like forest burn with equal ease before the white hot heat of God's holy glory. And if John Golden Gay is right, this actually happened a century later, a hundred years later when Nineveh would fall to the Babylonians in 612 BC. A hundred years between when God said, this thing will come to be, and that thing came to pass. Now, as I thought about this, I found this fascinating. You know, we don't like to wait very long for stuff. Like any of you get like really tired of waiting in the in and out line, right? You're like, is there another shorter line? Like, I, can't, I don't have five minutes for this, right? Like, can you imagine having to, like, pluck the chickens and all that kind of stuff? And yet here, what this means is, there were multiple generations spent, who spent a lifetime of leaning on all kinds of things other than God between when God said this and when God's judgment actually fell. See, I believe God wants His people to take note that God's power will one day utterly humiliate every other earthly power that we lean on or trust in. Fear controlled Isaiah and sent them leaning. Hope of survival sent Judah leaning. And in a day, the divine warrior devastated their seemingly invincible enemy. Do you see it? How quickly our realities can change. How quickly God promises our realities will change one day when Christ returns. Now here's what this means, I think, on the surface level. On the surface level, and I like to look at things on surface level, that's where I like to camp out, but you don't have to give in to CNN and Fox News' attempts to cause you to be shackled by the daily threats of human history in the morning news, right? You don't have to like sit there and watch and think, oh man, like 
Everything's out of control. I don't know what God's going to do. You don't have to do that. You can trust that God, in the twinkle of an eye, with the flip of a switch, will change our reality as we know it forever. See, God can topple the great tyrants of this world in the blink of an eye and have them eating grass in the field like a cow by lunchtime. If you don't believe me, just ask Nebuchadnezzar, who later would defeat Assyria. That's exactly what happened to him. See, God is great beyond our comprehension. But don't miss this. I think he's telling us something more here, something that each of us, each of us can find our own hearts prone to do. Sometimes I believe that what God does, and catch me, this is important, God actually sometimes is fighting for you, and what that means is him devastating the things that you are leaning into or trusting with your life. And maybe that's you this morning. You are trusting in or leaning into something, maybe even a good thing, but to the degree that it's become something that you are trusting more than what you should, and it actually has more control over you than you have over it. That's exactly what we find here happening with God's people. Proverbs 3.5 says that we are to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and not to lean on our understanding. In all of our ways, we're to acknowledge Him, and we are promised that He will make our path straight. Now, let me just ask you, do you think that Proverbs uh, 3 is no longer like, important for us? Like, that text is obsolete. You no longer need to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Is that something that we still ought to do today? I think so. I think that God still wants His people to trust in Him with all of their hearts, with the center and core of who they are, with their mind, their will, their emotions. They want all of those things to be directed on God. Now, how do you know when you're trusting in the wrong things? Well, I think that that one test sometimes can be uh, our emotions or the way that we're thinking about things or reacting to things that we have lost or that we fear losing. So when we start to feel sort of an undercurrent of disillusionment or emptiness or hatred towards ourselves or others, it signals, I believe, that we have been perhaps leaning on a false savior. Maybe this morning you're disillusioned with God, not because he has let you down. Maybe that's what you're thinking, but because your confidence in God has shifted towards something or someone else in a way that it only should be resting and relying on God. I want you to know that we have a divine warrior who always fights to rescue us from the grips of false saviors that control us. Now catch this. I believe that some look for hope, joy, and meaning in the bottom of a bottle And others are looking for it at the top of a corporation. All of us are looking for some kind of meaning and significance. We are leaning into something with our hopes and our dreams. Now here's what you have to ask yourself. How do I know if I am leaning into a false God? Well, I can't really tell you that on my own. I can't see your heart as God can see your heart. But let me ask you some questions that maybe just helps you sort of figure out what that looks like, right? So just imagine for a second that you are a guy who is broken up with a girl. And all of a sudden, you have started to question whether or not your life means anything anymore, or whether or not you believe that you will ever be happy again, given what you have lost. And let me ask you really quickly, when you think about that scenario, has the thing that that guy has just lost a God or a girlfriend? Because it sounds a lot more like a God. Or what about... uh, 
the person who, I don't know, who is um, really trying to care for their kids well, and they've really sort of taken a hold of a good parenting technique, right? They found a great parenting technique, and let me just say parenting techniques are great, so I'm not against parenting techniques. Uh, We've had conferences on parenting, all that kind of stuff. But you've taken a hold of a parenting technique, and you really believe and have trusted that if you follow this to the T, that your kid, uh, they are going to be more obedient, they're going to go to Harvard, and they're going to love Jesus someday. If you just do it just right, right? Do you see how subtly your trust and confidence in a technique, maybe even a good technique, can technically become a worship of a God? And you're not really, you've not really been devoted to, and you've not really been pouring yourself into prayer and seeking God's face and asking for His help because you've got that great technique that you've been relying on. Or maybe it's not that. Maybe you've lost something like your job or your retirement or your health, and how has your heart responded in that? Uh, Do you start to question whether or not God loves you or is for you or is even there because you think to yourself if if he was there he wouldn't do that because that's not the kind of God I want my God to be but could it be that your sorrow at least in part is connected to the loss of the comfort of security that those good things have brought and if when God's good gifts disappear we lose sight of the giver it could be that we have suddenly shifted our confidence from God to his good gifts, which have become like gods that control our hearts, our hearts, our joys, and our dreams. Now, please don't get me wrong. Not every loss or suffering that comes upon you is directly because of sin. That, that's, Jesus is really clear about that, right? But, but one thing that we need to acknowledge is that God has promised us that He will work all things together for the good of those who love Him. And what that means is, is that every suffering that comes upon you, every difficulty, every loss, God is actually at work as a divine warrior fighting for your heart, trying to draw you more into Himself and win at least this one thing, the sanctification of your souls. He wants you to be holy like the holy God of Israel. And He will not waste any suffering in your life. Every suffering will will work out ultimately at least to this one end. That you will love Him more and that you will show more of His character in your life. That's what God's at work doing. See, God brings about good for us in every bad thing including the sanctification of our souls. So let me encourage you this morning, if you find yourself in the midst of some suffering, please don't, don't think that like there is some grand answer of some great thing that you have done wrong that God is like hiding from you like a rabbit in a hat just so He can sort of make it appear at some divine moment and surprise you and you go, wow, God, you're amazing. That's not what God's doing. God is actually engaging with you, trying to bring about holiness in your life. So here's what you do. Seek God's face. Seek His face in His Word and prayer. Seek Him. Trust Him. Don't doubt Him. And ask Him to use it, this thing that God has brought upon you, to dislodge your heart from trusting anything and everything but Himself. Here's why. God redeems His remnant from the burdens of abusive lords. This is the reality of all of our false gods and the things that we love and that we pursue. They are abusive lords. They are not like the God of heaven who loves His people. Notice in verses 20 to 23, 
a very startling and encouraging reality. Don't miss this. God doesn't merely rescue us from leaning on and trusting in others for His glory. He does that. He will be glorified. But He delivers us for our good. And you, you've got to believe that. God tells us. Just watch what God says He does on the same day that He devastates this king of Assyria in verses 20 to 21. Look there with me. Here's what He says. In that day... The remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth, and they will return to the mighty God. Did you catch that? Israel will no more lean on those who struck him, but they will lean on the Lord. Now here he's speaking of a a repentant remnant. They are those who turned from leaning on other things than God to leaning on their God. Why? Because all of those things that they put a God-sized faith and confidence in struck them. Did you catch that? See, God rips us from the arms of the gods that we love that continue to abuse and strike us. That's what God is doing. He is not taking good things from us. He is taking abusive lords from us. And His grace sets us apart as one of His remnant dear to His heart. In other words, God doesn't want us to lean into Him for what He can get out. He's leaning, He's not for what out. He's looking for what He can give to us, for what He can give to us. God is not like the other gods that are looking for their pound of flesh. He is a God who is longing for your good. Those of you who have put your faith in Christ, God is for you as a father is for his child. Now, how can we understand this? If God loves us, why isn't he in for it for what he gets out of us and his glorification? Well, God will be glorified by his people. That's going to happen. But here's something we know about God that really just confirms the fact that he's not loving us for what he gets out. It's, it's, it's a reality about God in his nature, right? I don't know if you've heard of the attribute of a saity. It's from say. It's a word that means from himself or from itself and it's really I think one of the distinctive characteristics of God that separates him from everything else see God is the uncreated one who created everything he is altogether sufficient in and of himself he is not needy for anything and so what that tells us about God is is that God has not set his affections on us created us disciplined us because he is needy from something from us He has done it because of something that is within him as the God of life and the God of love. It is because God is good that he has loved us, that he has pursued us. He is not needy. See, God, he crushes the things that we lean on, not because he wants something from us, but because he wants something for us, himself. Have you you ever thought about that? The, The creator of the universe who needs nothing from you? who is altogether vast beyond our our knowledge or understanding, who is infinite before finite creatures, wants to give you himself. What kind of God is like this? He is completely unlike the other gods that the nations have created that are always needy and trying to steal something from us. He is the God who has come with grace to give us everything. See, God, God's not just our sugar daddy. He's the sugar. He is the sweetest sugar that there is or ever has been. There is nothing delightful 
as God is delightful. There is nothing as comely or beautiful or sweet or, or, or that lights the eyes or sparkles quite like God. There's nothing like Him. In fact, all of the bits that we have seen of God are just small twinkles of the reality of the vastness of the brightness of God that will light our eternity once we are in heaven forever. There's none like Him. Now God's showing us this, I believe, again in verse 22, the the reality of His goodness towards us. Now I think verse 22 is a tough verse. Look at that verse. I think it's a tough verse. It's tough to translate, even though all major English versions translate it the same way. Now, I'm not changing theology here, get you know, comfortable, but all major translations say something like, for though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. I believe this points to the smallness of the remnant of Israel in light of God's promise of a people as numerous as the sands of the seashore promise that was made to Abraham in Genesis 22.17. But Alec Moitier, or Moitier recommends an alternative translation that works in the Hebrew, and I actually prefer it in context here. I think, he says, this is today, but he says, but indeed your people Israel will be like the, sea of the, the sands of the sea. The remnant among them will return. A finished work determined upon flooding and righteousness. Now, now, you see how this is different? This would actually point to the largeness of the remnant, not the smallness. It would say that they are the size of the, the promise of the sands of the seashore that was made to Abraham. God has fulfilled his promise. Now, here's what I would say. Either way, I think it means the same thing ultimately. God is reminding them of the promise that he made to Abraham, that they would be as numerous as the sands of the seashore. You'll remember in verse 19 that the king of Assyria had his remnant. Well, in verse 23, we're told that it will be brought to an end. But God is here signaling that he is not done with Israel's remnant. His promises will be fulfilled. He will bless them in every way he has said. They have not been pushed back by their disobedience. God will make good on all of his promises. Don't miss this. Those things that we lean into for what only God can provide, like affirmation, power, comfort, and security, they will all turn and strike us and ultimately end in death just like the king of Assyria and his people did. Now, do you remember how Israel wanted to return to Egypt when they were in the wilderness after God rescued them in the Exodus? Do you remember that? Have you ever thought about how crazy that is? I mean, they, God had just rescued them from a people who had oppressed them and made them slaves, who beat them with whips and killed their babies. And they were like, you know what, God, I think I just want to go back to those guys. I think it's safer and more comfortable. And when I read that, I'm always thinking, these guys are like cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. That's crazy stuff. Who would actually want to go back to that? And yet, if we are honest about the nature of human desire, don't we all know that we love to go back to our abusers? Like there is something broken in us, I believe, that is revealed in the fact that we love to go back to those who strike us. Think about it. Think about the woman that's living in an abusive relationship who refuses to leave or seek help. You know, some have died at the hands of their abusers because they've got this thing they call Stockholm Syndrome, right? They can't tear themselves away from their abusers. I was just recently reading about drug dealers who said that their sales of heroin actually went up 
whenever there were overdoses. It was like a feeding frenzy. People were like, oh, wow, that's powerful stuff. I've got to get that. Or what about Forbes, who just reported that the University of Oxford has linked 10,000 suicides to the financial crisis of 2007. People who made their lives and their livings on Wall Street were later killing themselves because of what happened on Wall Street when it failed them. Now, what do these three types of people have in common? You might think they're a lot, like, way different. See, each trusted something other than God to give life and meaning, and when that thing failed them, it struck them to death. See, God redeems His people, and they repent or turn away from being controlled by the empty promises of false gods to the life-giving Word of God. They listen to the voice of God and trust Him. See, spiritually, sin tries to call Christians back into bondage. That's what sin does. Uh, In fact, in Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, a a book by that Puritan Thomas Brooks, he gives a real good picture, an illustration of the nature of the way that sin works. Here's what he says. Satan's first device to draw the soul into sin is to present the bait, catch this, and hide the hook. To present the golden cup and hide the poison, to present the sweet and the pleasure and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin, and to hide from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of sin. See, Satan seduced the first woman and man with lies about God that led to death. People not trusting God's Word, but trusting something else for life. And I believe these same lies come to us. Maybe you've heard some of these. Here here are five that I've come up with. One is, God is withholding good from me. Right? Like there is some good thing that, that I want and that's out there that I really could have, and God is hiding it from me. Which also, I think, second, speaks to the nature of God. Can God be trusted? Can I trust that God is for me? And that God is able. And third, that obedience to God's word is either preventing or limiting my joy. Like if I were to sin, then I could be happy. But because I'm not sinning, I'm not happy. Or what about fourth? Sin offers greater joy and fulfillment than obedience. You know, like, I've been obedient. I'm not happy. There must be more happiness with sin. can't be me that's broken. It must be the things I'm doing. I need to change what I'm doing. And I'll be happy. Or what about fifth? Sin leads to life and obedience to a death of myself. Have you ever heard people say, I want to find myself through something that is clearly disobedient against God's Word? Could it be that we are trusting lies of Satan when we go off on those pursuits that will ultimately lead in death? See, when our hearts begin to believe any or all of these, we go God shopping, leaning into people or things for what only God can provide. Of course, we know that quite the opposite is true. So don't miss this. Happiness and holiness go together in the same way that sin and sadness go together. God's grace rips us from the arms of the gods that we love, that abuse and strike us, to Himself as the great lover of our souls. And we find that the future for us is incredibly bright in verses 24 to 34. Notice that God will deliver Zion again. See, God has always fought to deliver His people. You'll notice that God directs His people to pass deliverances on a couple of occasions to to reinforce their trust of Him. He points them to what He did in Egypt and with the Midianites in verses 24 to 26. And He's hoping this will give them confidence before Assyria. Look what He says in verses 24 to 26. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. The Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb and his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. What powerful images. You'll remember in Egypt, whenever God delivered his people out of slavery, he struck Egypt with ten plagues that each were directed directly at one of their false gods until finally the Pharaoh relented and he let God's people go. And as they were racing off, the Pharaoh changed his mind and sent his mighty armies after them. And you'll find that Moses actually took his staff and lifted it. And by the power of God, the waters were separated so that they went to the other side. And when they're safely on the other side and the warriors were going through from Egypt, God closed up and folded up the waters upon them. Saving Israel without Israel lifting a hand. Completely unexpected. Not only that, we find a second experience when he speaks of Midian and the rock of Oreb. That's that experience from Judges 7, whenever God delivered Israel with the hand of Gideon. Whenever uh, God took 300 men and defeated there an army that was as numerous as the sands of the seashore with Midian. God defeated them. And both of those, the way that they relate to one another, I believe, is God is showing how he himself brought about great victory for his people. Though they were weak and though they were small and though they weren't able, it was God himself that brought about the victory. The point? Trust God. Don't look with your eyes at what you think is possible. Trust God and obey even when your eyes are telling you otherwise. Then in verse 27, God says, In that day, Assyria's oppressive burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. I'm not really sure what the fat is here. Uh, Some think that it might be the fat of Assyria who had grown fat on oppressing Egypt. Others think that it might be a word for oil, speaking of a kind of anointing oil. But regardless, the point is clear that once God makes an end of Assyria's remnant, He's not done blessing his remnant. God is still fighting for his remnant. It might look like the stories are the same, but the end is vastly different. Don't miss this. The only way to lean on God with your life is to run to his king. King Jesus, with your whole life, putting your faith in him. He is the ultimate king that God was preparing Israel and Judah for. See, Jesus is the one king who has come not to burden you, like Assyria and Midian and Egypt, but to relieve your burdens. In fact, in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 29, Jesus comes and He brings His kingdom. And here's what He says when He arrives. He says, Come to Me. It's an invitation to all of us. Come to Me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For, the, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see it? God said, I will remove your burdens. And God comes in, He sends His Son, and His Son Jesus says, I've come to give you a better yoke. A yoke that is easy, that is light, that removes the load that you've been bearing for yourself. That load of being responsible for your sins before God. That load of recognizing that there is no hope in death. 
That load of recognizing that your identity, your identity is meaningless without a God who has created you for His glory and for your good. He says, I have come to give you a better yoke. And so this morning, if you're a non-Christian, King Jesus, He invites you to turn from leaning on all kinds of good things that are bad gods to King Jesus who died to relieve you of your spiritual burdens. Now, Jesus has come to give you good news. You know, this week I was... Uh, had the opportunity to hear a number of testimonies, and one was from a woman who spent years, years in agony before God because she wanted to live a holy and righteous life, and all she could think as she thought about the holiness of God was how sinful she was. And she would, she would be angry at God in turmoil and screaming at God about how she could not relieve this burden of her guilt before God. And one day she was at her last, the brink of her last moment, and she was struggling and just, she locked herself in a room and said, I'm not leaving until I fix this. And it's in the midst of that when she said, God, why would you make me this way if you weren't going to help me do anything about it? And his message immediately, in, in that moment to her, she heard the scriptures coming up and the gospel began to speak to her. And she said in her heart something to this effect. And in that moment, I heard my son Jesus has already accomplished all that you need. Trust in Him. Lean into Christ. He is all that you need before me. He is your salvation. He is the good King. Put your confidence in Him. And if that's you today, and you have not put your faith in Christ, you can, like her, found salvation at the feet of Jesus. His yoke is easy. He has come to save you. Don't leave without talking to someone about how you can put your faith in Christ like she did. Now, there's another thing I think that we see here for Christians, and that's this. Galatians 5.13 warns us, as Christians, that we understand our freedom and that we understand what the removal of the yoke of slavery means. And in Galatians 5.13, Paul says this, For you, brothers, were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. I don't miss this. Freedom in Christ, it isn't an invitation to sin all the more that grace may abound. Paul would say, God forbid. God forbid. Do you not realize the slavery that is sin? The fact that sin wants to destroy you and kill you and take from you. He is not good like God is good. That's a lie from hell. Freedom in Christ isn't freedom to run from a tough marriage because God wants you to be happy or to lust after what you see with your eyes thinking, well, you know, I have grace and all. Or an anthem that propels you to find yourself or make much of you. That's not what the freedom that the Bible speaks of is that you've been brought to this new yoke of freedom. Do you know what you've been freed to? You've been freed to obey King Jesus. And everything that He calls you to do is for your good and God's glory. And to believe anything else is to believe a lie from hell. So if you've been freed, the good news is not only that God loves you not because of your obedience, but because of Jesus, but also because you can please God now. The the bank's been open. You can bring glory to God. You're not just filthy rags anymore. You're actually a child of God that He delights in. Folks, that's freedom like this world does not know. There's another thing that we find here. Not only that we've been freed from the bondage of sin, I believe a message for the church. And catch this. We find here in this text and the other text that individual freedom in Christ will actually lead to corporate freedom in the local church. Did you catch that? The freedom that sets us free from sin binds us to the people of God 
Christ's body. The same thing that removes us from the domain of darkness actually connects us with the kingdom of light. Did you see that? What do you do with freedom in Galatians 5.13? It says, here's your freedom, love one another. Lean on the body of Christ, Christ's people. I love what we find in John 13, 34 to 35, where Jesus says, here's what I want you to do as I leave. I want you to love one another as I have loved you. And by this love, all men will know that you're my disciples. If you're following me, if you're leaning into Jesus, then you're going to be leaning into one another, serving them in the way that I have served you, sacrificially. And if we lean into Christ, we will lean into his body, the church, and they will lean into us. So let me just encourage you, you're free to move about the cabin and love God's people. God has opened up the glorious bank of his love to us, and we have come to take part. So let me just ask you this morning a few quick questions. Uh, thinking about the church, are you part of a community group? Were you able to actually cast your cares on others and have them cast on you? Or have you even become a member of the church? Have you joined and committed yourself to a body that is holding you committed, that is taking accountability for you? And how are you specifically serving others this morning? You know, maybe you're just coming and hearing the Word of God and then leaving. Let me just tell you, God wants more for you than that. God wants more for us than that. He wants you to love sacrificially the body in the same way that Christ has loved you. There are aspects and glories in the gospel that you are completely missing out on. Commit yourself to serving the body. Are you making the most of your freedom? I hope that you are. But you'll notice how quickly things can change. This whole world, maybe right now you're disillusioned with life. This is a a message from God that someday he's going to turn the light switch on when his son returns. You'll notice in verses 28 to 32, we get a picture of how sudden God will remove Assyria. In 28 to 32, each picture envisions Assyria coming closer to Judah, drawing near. Until in 32, you get this image of him shaking his fist at Judah from the outer gates. He's just about to completely annihilate them. And then we find that God decides to act. And with one fell swoop in verse 33, it says, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying fear. The great and height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. See, here God displayed his power by dropping great trees. Of course, we know that later he would show his unparalleled power not by dropping trees, but by raising one on which his son would hang as a, a, as a sacrifice for you and me, that we might win sacrifice, uh, forgiveness with God and become children of God. Three days later, God would raise him from the dead to make an open display that he had defeated sin, death, and the devil. And praise be to God that he came to rescue us from all the false gods that, we turn, that will turn on us to give us his son in freedom. Let's pray.